Hey, hey, yo, hey, yeah, hey, here we are, hey, hey, climbing from the line, hey, 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 let's hey, say start hey, stop. Hey. Vamos falar, solta o verbo, tamo aqui pra apavorar. Aí, juventude, fica ligada. Lorena chegou aqui na parada, vamos falar. De climate uh -huh. change, climate yeah. mitigation, o que uh -huh. você pode fazer pra melhorar Isso, a sua vida cara. e de todo mundo que tá perto aí? Nossa! Welcome everyone, my name is Alfredo and you are now at the Climate Frontline Podcast. This is the show where we interview community leaders that are taking action in all sorts of struggles. We interview people who are in these industries and are taking initiative on all these challenges that we face as a community. And we do this to really change the narrative of climate and who gets to write that narrative, right? Shifting the microphone closer to those people who are closer to the front line, the climate front line. And so welcome to the show. In this community, we really have these conversations to to change the narrative. And we do this one conversation at a time because it's an ongoing dialogue. And as you have heard already, I am here joined with Lorena Nascimento. Thank you for being here, Lorena. Thanks for having me, Alfredo. It's great to be talking about climate frontline, our needs and how we can change and how we can evolve as a society and get ready for the climate that's coming and uh, all the changes and uh, uh, a way to unite communities and to rely on each other and to change our mindsets and to tell our narratives. That is something that I'm learning with you through the Climate Frontline podcast. Yeah. So for those folks who may not know who you are, would you just take some time to share a little bit of who you are and what is it that you do in this journey called life? Yeah, so I'm Lorena. I... I go by different names, I would say. Uh, Lorena, my, my name, right? That's uh, how I would uh, introduce myself. In the United States, at where I'm living now, Turtleland, I would call myself Lottie Burf. And there is a translation of my name, Lorena Nascimento. Lottie Lorena Burf Nascimento. You can also go by Jupira da Praia. There is a value that I'm learning back from my ancestrality. Jupiter, it's a cabocla name that is a spirit of the forest. And Jupiter da Praia is the Jupiter from, from the ocean. And they have a strong connection with the ocean. And there's something that I miss every day. So I'm a mix of all this personality, uh, bringing some simplicity with me, bringing some spirituality, bring some serious part that I, that I bring to my, my work with uh, environmental justice. And yeah, and but I'm also I can be also funny and and playful, so that's a little bit of Lorena. <laughs> yeah, and you and I have been talking about the climate front line before even this show, and other people have been talking about the climate front line before even technologies like this took place, right? Yes. So, for this episode. You and I got to prepare and, and discuss this in this location where we're at. We are right now in Yakama land, which is one of the peoples who lived right outside what is now modern day Portland, Oregon. And 
I got a chance to meet you through a mutual friend of ours, Jonathan. I remember meeting you the first time and it was more of a colleague relationship I would describe because we were just getting to know each other. But then once I found out you're from Brazil and I was in my journey to to learn Portuguese, I think that drew me closer to you. So yeah, tell us a little bit of what life is in like Brazil and what are the things that happen in Brazil that brought you into the environmental movement and particularly also the environmental justice movement. Yeah, just to reinforce that you're in Yakama land and that is uh, just acknowledging uh, the land that we are. It's a practice that honor our ancestrality. And hi to Jonathan. Thank you so much. He's a great friend. Love you, TJ. And 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 coming from, from Brazil to here, it's uh, a big a big part of that is having support of friends like Jonathan, like Alfredo, like friends that I met through this journey. In Brazil, I started studying forestry uh, as a response from the kind of job that I was having. I was I grew up in I'm from Rio de Janeiro, Carioca de Coração, but then I moved to the coast to Macaé, and what I create this big strong connection with the ocean and and like as a kid as in my childhood was the ocean that I used to go and play and have memories one of my best memories like finding penguin on the beach uh, doing like bodyboard and uh, hanging out with friends on the beach and eventually end up working in the oil industry uh, that's one of the values economic values from that region too uh, but was something that I didn't enjoy at all. Uh, it was a big uh, offshore hub, Makae. But I I feel like I cannot do that for the rest of my life. So then I started studying forestry. And I think I found myself, I found like friends who, who found the same way that me, had a passion for nature. But uh, during, and I was working a lot with wood science, with like doing tests, mechanical, physical tests. And I was missing the connection between nature and people. So I had a chance to come to the United States, to Portland, to do grad school. And then I start to explore more the things that I am passionate for about today, which is work with public policies, work with environmental justice, community engagement. So uh, it's, a, it's a long path from Brazil to here. I don't know where I'm going from now, but where I am now, I'm a, like discovering like new technologies, work with GIS uh, tools to 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 uh, to find answers for our problems, to be able to model our uh, like uh, perceptions that we can that we can what we can expect for the future, to uh, like share with people how we can build up our data, how we can tell our narratives, how we can map local issues about related to climate, and yeah, so. That's where I am now and sharing this knowledge and also connect with people that are also interested to do, to work in the same way. Yeah, your journey is really fascinating and I think you are able to navigate academic spaces, your different identities, both here in the United States or what is now known, known as the United States, as well as Brazil, right? And a uh, big focus here on the show is language. So I think the question, question that comes up for me is, What are the differences between the language that you navigate as you think about all these things? Okay. Because we we are th this is an episode that we're recording as part of my tour in the 
in the Pacific Northwest. And yeah, I'm just curious to know, how is it that you navigate language? That is uh, something that I wasn't aware that I had to navigate through that until I moved here. Uh, it's like, I would say that I, they're like language, bear, no, uh, so let's say like, I'm from, uh, I speak Portuguese, my first language. And, and it's not just the, the language of Portuguese, it's even how you sound the words, how you share your ideas, how you tell a story. And, and it's, uh, such as Spanish, is a romance language. And uh, if you want to say something, you would go back and forth, you would illustrate, you would like do flowers around the narrative and, and tell your emotions how you felt. Um, English is a more straightforward language. And I came here to uh, do grad school. So part of, a big part of grad school was reading and writing. And there was definitely one barrier that I, that I had here. Almost made me give up of grad school because like, I'm not going to be able to communicate in this new language that is English. Uh, and I didn't realize there was this difference of language until I, I moved here. And but but and but this bring me brought me the aware that it's not just like different language, different uh, like uh, like Portuguese, Spanish, English, but also the way that you communicate to people. So if I have to talk with somebody in a public policy, municipal, uh, a local government event, it's a different way that if you're gonna communicate to your classmates to uh, uh, local community engagement, talking to youth, so different, navigate through these different languages. And in the academia, we, we kind of, like the language that we are taught that is acceptable, it's a language that is very strict. I have to use all this fancy vocabulary, all these uh, kind of like fancy words, uh, but it's not all that. Like, and I, I like the, how the youth is bringing like a revolution on the language too, uh, with podcasts, with social media, with uh, the commentaries. So there is another form of language. There's another form to communicate. And it can be even more clear and it can help not just with language, but also with visual, with uh, sound effects. So that's a different way to communicate that has such as effective as speaking Portuguese, speaking in English, speaking in a written word, uh, like a, a word of, uh, like a transmission. And, and, the, and we, uh, and there's, within language, and now I'm studying more, like getting more connected with my ancestrality, there are many values that are not written down. And then just got to know them when you talk to people, uh, when you, like the art of storytelling, the art of talking to to elders, this intergeneration. So I think in language is, is all that, and there's so much more to discover as well. Yeah. <clears throat> and you are someone who is really passionate about the language of data, t data, right? And I want to spend some time talking about data because I do have to, I have a level of skepti skepticism that comes with engaging with data just because I think the the books and the the ways I've seen data manipulated it's usually to tell a narrative that that is someone else's and for many of those communities who are at the front line of climate change 
they may not have access or the knowledge to generate their own data. And if they do, it's definitely not a conventional way, right? It's not like a GIS map if they know what that is, or there's not like a plot in some kind of software. It's maybe it's the seasons that change and how they capture that. Maybe it's the different frequencies, their voices are are displayed or they communicate so it's not it's definitely not just a plot of dots so tell me a little bit about how you're thinking about data so that we do get to change the climate narrative because it a big part of that is access right and who has access to these so could you just share a little bit of more of what you're thinking around that yeah sure i as you mentioned talk about gis now i'm working as a GIS instructor at Portland Community College. And GIS stands for Geographic Information Systems or Geographic Information Science. And that is the the one branch of geography where we we use uh, attribute data, spatial data to map and then to do uh, analysis and find uh, solutions for like one, like solutions and mitigations for spatial problems. So in in the in our program at PCC Portland Community College, there is this concern. There is there's a concern for bringing uh, racial equity, social justice through. So so the students they will be able to see the example of how to use data, how to use how to use GIS tools to solve problems. One of the labs we. The, the students, they need to uh, find a new place for a library. So then they're looking into, like, demographic analysis, data from the census, uh, access to public transportation, a proximity to a school. So where will be the best way? Where will be the, a library that will serve better the community? So this is just one example. And But data, again, we're talking about data here for the whole day. Uh, also, uh in class and talking to to friends about like what what like data now is a commodity. You are uh, like our data is being collected. You don't even know with through like our phones through geotags. So uh, one other thing that I that I, uh, I'm learning studying is a public participation GIS. So it's when the public participate to uh, build up those this data. Some studies. They uh, use focus group where people can uh, map uh, their feelings about the environment. So in a, uh, a national forest, where do you have, uh, where would you perceive spirituality? Where do you perceive economic values? Where would you perceive uh, access to recreation? So values that are hard to map. So how would you measure spirituality and recreation? But if you... Uh, if people can produce their own data, they can participate with that perspective, there is something that can start like to have information about that. But on the same way, there are other, uh, there is the privacy of our data, what is, is being collected without us know, uh, how, who has access to that, and 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 even who has the resource, who got the training to, 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 to know how to work with all this data. Uh, I think in the COVID nineteen pandemic, it just uh, it's now one of the biggest issues in our worldwide society, 
is the inequality access to resources. And 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 teaching you see that different need, like even like access to technology. So I think one of the the, the challenge is to first like uh, even first like to uh, spread like the importance of the language of uh, the uh, be able to produce your own data with whatever tool you have. If you just work with mental maps and start like to observe what is the environment around you, how does it impact on your your life decisions, how does it impact on your limitations and your dreams and your expectations for land use. Uh, the other uh, challenge is to like first like create this awareness for uh, importance of being aware of, of the the importance of the, the physical landscape, the physical and the that surrounds us. And and the other is like train people on the same way that today people have access to internet and then to to uh, to writing like uh, softwares also be able to have access to mapping software so they can produce their own data they can map their own uh, own geographic issues so that way we can bring uh, climate actions that are uh, that will be uh, associated to local issues because we've talked about climate change as a general thing it can be climate change can be related to global warming to to hurricanes to wildfires. So, what is the the need the the need of a specific location like in the Pacific Northwest? There is a big concern for wildfires in tropical Caribbean for hurricanes in Brazil. The deforestation flood. So, if the the community is aware about the, those issues, how it's impacted, how we can mitigate that, where is it is being more impacted, what are the uh, like does COVID-19, the, the pandemic, does it aggravate all those issues? So uh, just bring like this edu- the education to the to the community and learning from the community, hearing from them what are their, need, their needs and empower them and uh, just showing they have the power and they have their voice and, and giving them the tools to communicate that and to and then together solve problems. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned this because I'm not quite sure we'll ever get to a world where the spiritual values of these communities who are in the rainforest or who are in the Amazon and they have this relationship with the land. I don't think we're ever going to really be able to capture the value that 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 relationship signifies, right, to its totality. However, I do see value in having youth who are able to to be a facilitator in that process, right? Because I think right now, at least when I see people or when I speak with people in industries of international development, of conservation, they're thinking along the lines of how do we get the carbon data, right? Or how do we get the the KPIs? These These terms that for many folks, they don't know. Their acronyms they don't know. It's language they they don't have access to. It's education they have not had, right? And in many times, it, with data and numbers comes a dehumanizing factor, right? And so, I'm just excited at the opportunity to continue to have these conversations with you. You have conversations with other folks because I think it's good to have questions and 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 ask, you know, important questions about 
how we're using data, but I do see the the benefit of having folks who have the skills necessary to manipulate that data and make sense of that data for those communities who just have not had the opportunity to collect their own data and tell that story because with data, you can drive a narrative. So thank you for joining me again, Lorena. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I'm here with Lorena Nacimiento and stay tuned. We'll be right back. We'll be back. An inspiring story. Well, I know we're, maybe we'll talk some more about this, but I'll have to say just because of who I am and where I am in my life, to see youth organizing, you know, you know with not only just climate, because you know we talk about climate and we talk about the the culture and doing the work, as you mentioned, community doing that of their own, which I really think is important because there's a lot to do. Um, but I think besides doing, this is what I was saying, you can do the work, but you also have to do it with other people. So there's this care that you have for each other by doing this work. Because if you don't, then you're losing out on half of the positive results so uh, I don't you know so I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm inspired by some of the youth organizing movement that's going on um, and I also think about a story is um, my mother always inspired me. she was always making sure that she supported you know us when we were young and told us to really think big and like I said you know you can do or be anything you want, <laughs> which I thought was, you know, I tell people this, it's like, well, that's really great that my mom did that, but she didn't, I didn't have the context because she came from Hawaii and moved here, so I didn't really have the context of really what that meant, being in mostly white spaces, you know, that kind of white supremacy culture that happens in, on the states, it's much different Hawaii, which has its other issues as well, interculturally, but, um, so I kind of laugh about that and realize that um, she's kind of set me up to really try really hard. And so that was, that really helped me get a broad experience, but it also really shaped my perspective on how hard it really is and how a lot of this opportunity is not for everybody. So thanks, mom. But <laughs> you didn't give me the whole story, but, but she didn't know because she didn't grow up here. I do. She inspired me a lot to, to hang in there and be tenacious. That was Anita Yap. You can listen to the rest of the conversation with Anita next week. Okay, so we are now back 
with Lorena Nascimento. We are here on on this episode that I think is a seed in in what you'll have an opportunity to to discuss and learn with in Lorena and ask questions as well as just also hear the narrative that you have to share Lorena with your communities right because for me I think I have one understanding of what the climate frontline is I know that it's different than than this narrative around like these low income underserved historically marginalized second wor third world i don't know what other terms they use to refer to many of these communities and from my own relationships with a lot of folks who are in the mining industry in the conservation industry there's a lot of knowledge there so they are rich they are powerful and i think that's a different narrative right than saying like the most vulnerable per se So I'm excited to have an opportunity to have you be part of that changing of narrative too because of your understanding of the issues in Brazil, of what's going on there. And so the question then comes up of how do you define the climate frontline? So I really like your review on the vocabulary. Oh my God, that's one of the biggest struggles in the academia uh, even uh Like we, I'll, like first answer your question. Like who is the climate front line? I think it's people who are on the front line, willing to change. Uh, there are maybe most impacted all, by all the the, the change in the climate and in the and the land use. So those who are more impacted and might have less financial resources less voice within the mainstream media, those are the people who are, are making the change. And I identify myself as one of those people in the BIPOC, black, indigenous, people of color community. But even this term, like people of color, like in, uh, is in the academia, it's widely accepted. In Brazil, people of color is so racist. It's so We, It's like, okay, you don't want to say the person is black and and use people of color, persuadical, this term, it can be very racist. So even, it is another thing about language. But uh, one thing that I am exploring more now uh, is, like, uh, and then Alfredo talks about a lot about on, on the Climate Frontline podcast, is the change in the narrative. And the way I'm studying that is through changing the narrative through the reimagination of values reimagination of our narratives and what does it means about reimagination so this is uh i'm reading the book uh black faces white spaces from caroline finney it was the book from 2014 and talk exactly about this reimagination of values when you think about hiking and mountain mountaineering if you think about like a hiker and most of the times on your mind you're gonna be you're gonna see like a white hiker never like a person of color, never like a black hiker. But we are on those spaces too. We are not being photographed by media. We are not being interviewing men, uh, like outdoor channels, but we are there. And then we have our different narrative towards nature. So this is a concept that I, and the, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, 
I uh, I'm on social media, Lori Burf. There is a an account that I create to kind of share my perspective as a black scholar, as a as a black person who did forestry that is a white. Uh, like I remember, like in my forest class, forest forestry classes, most of the structures are white. Uh, that the books that we're reading were on uh, conservation, uh, ecology, and uh, forest management, written by white people. So it's uh, and that is the, that's their narrative, and I started this account to explore to just see an image of a black hand, identifying a, a tree. It's like a way to, okay, we are there as well. Like there is our nature too. So, uh, and I remember one hashtag, uh, black people who hike that was during summer and I got able to connect to other people also doing this, this, uh, this work on, on social media, sharing their experience and their narratives with nature. And one thing that caught my attention during this live with all those, uh, black influencers, uh, hikers and, and uh, nature enthusiasts, uh, if you're doing a hike with a friend, if a group of friends and you're all black, the other people on the trail that not people of color ask, oh, are you from a church group? Like, th- there's not this expectation that black people are hiking just because they like in the same way that a white group would be. So, uh, and I think part of the uh, climb frontline community is to change their narratives. So my... Yeah, that's, um, as I mentioned before, I'm in uh, grad school, and one of the, the chapters I'm working now is about the reimagination. You can think about that through spirituality as well. Uh, in Brazil, there are religiões uh, de uh, matriz africana, which is a Afro-indigenous, Afro-origin uh, religions, such as Umbanda, Candomblé, Jurema, that I've been studying uh, more lately, and in this uh, this religions, nature is a big part of that. Like there is core with herbs, and and the, the we believe that our strength comes from nature. And there is a lot of discrimination, a lot of trying to erase this culture. So just be able to to uh, to show that the values of this religion that is a way to help black people connect with nature. It's a way to change the narrative and then to normalize access of BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and nature. Just a way to 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 be part of the climate front line and to show like a different uh, different values that are not largely explored by the mainstream media. So, what I'm hearing from you is that there's different places where the front line shows up, right? And I'm curious to know if you could share a little bit more also of how exactly does the climate frontline show up in the context of Brazil and the places that you call home? Yeah, so I that's a that's a, that's a great question because uh, I talk about uh, resources. Uh, when I talk about data, I talk about resources and access to resources. And I, I came from Brazil. I moved here. Uh, to the U.S. and one of the things that sometimes even like I feel like emotional and even feel like crying sometimes because it's so so much resources, a lot of resources that I would never imagine. Like first time that I was, you know, in university in the United States, 
and I entered into the library, I was like, oh my God, so many books, like new computers, we can have access to that. That can just be like odd for like our American student, but coming from a country where like in the library, in my, in my college, uh, we, we, did, we couldn't like stay with the, with the book for too long, there were like safety concerns, people would be like stealing books, there was like such fewer books, some books you wouldn't be able to borrow, old books, uh, so just having access to this resource is great. So I, I have a, like a personal feeling like, okay, I want to give back to my community. Like since I'm here, since I have access to those resources, I want to be able to somehow uh, be able to contribute and, and kind of like to pay back. So lately, in the past year, with the, again, like with the pandemic, the things kind of become, a lot of things became remotely and I think that is something that even after the pandemic that can be there to stay because it brought so much so much like benefits for those who have access to resources. So the first thing that we kind of discussed already is the uh, make it like the resources available in an equity in a more eco way. And uh, the other things that I, I try to, to support I'm, uh, from as I mentioned, I'm from Macaé is a city in the coast of Rio de Janeiro, and I've been connecting with a nonprofit there. So I helped them to write a a, a proposal for a interpretative and adaptive trail, which is a way to uh, bring people to explore more uh, a local natural area and be able to map their values. Especially in the pandemic, people are looking seeking more activities that they can do uh, in social distance, the connection with nature. So uh, creating an a inter interpretative trail and adaptive, it brings access to uh, uh, people with different cap capabilities and, uh, and explore like a different, like even like different tourism for the city, uh, new values and the connection to people and nature. And uh, one thing you're planning to is do a workshop uh, on story map, which is a way to build a narrative and then to create express maps, be able to to build, to map their, uh, their issues that have been persistent in that community. And uh, so you're scaling that for, for June, July, and with this this group. So that is my way to contribute. I I wish I had more time, and I'm looking yeah. forward to, 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 to finish this grad school, and then to be able to focus more on projects like that, because that is, that is my passion. Absolutely. And a, a big piece of what I heard from that response is resources, right? Because when we think of environmental justice, I think often we speak about who has the access to or who has the resources to be able to. Who lives closest to the polluting industry or who lives closest to the highway who lives closest to the forestry or the forest sector who that's being chopped off and and i agree with you in the sense that hey you know in in many parts of peru even in some parts here in the u.s in in areas that just quote-unquote lack resources that is the situation right there's lack of resources what happens though if we do have a world where everybody has access to the resources, 
is Earth going to be able to still maintain us in that way if we all have the same demand as each of us, you know, in, in the places that we refer to as uh, developed? Like, what if everybody was producing a podcast like we are right now? So I'm, I'm putting this question to you to also ask, like, hey, you know, we can advocate for having the same access, but where does that end also? And does it end well for us? Because... I think there's also this mentality with us humans, right? That, hey, we need to protect Mother Earth, right? Or Pachamama, we have to protect Mother Earth. And it's like, Mother Earth is going to be fine without us, you know? It's not like we have control over Mother Earth. So we're not here to protect Mother Earth. Mother Earth is has given just signs that, hey, if you don't do this, then I may just get rid of you. So I'm just curious to know a little bit of your perspective as it relates to that relationship because so much of it is the resources and lack of opportunity access that we know happens in Brazil. We know that happens in many other quote-unquote underdeveloped nations, even within developed nations. Could you share some thoughts around that? Yeah, it's uh, interesting you you talk uh, about like the relationship of uh, us and Mother Earth. Uh, that it's because if it can be even a little like a jealous uh, thought. Okay, we have to save the Earth, otherwise we're gonna die. Uh, there is one say from Corona, the trouble with the wider nest. says the only way to like I don't know exactly the words, but it's kind of like. The only way to save nature is to kill ourselves because, and there, because uh, we are destroying our, like our planet, and there is um, other says like in uh, I don't know who said it, but it's like it's it's, it's largely it's common in spiritual and uh, eco poetry uh, studies like if nature if uh, the animals had a religion, the women's would be the devil because. It's uh, it's so much greedy that and and that's part of like changing the mindset. It's not, uh, of course, related to resources, uh, but I think it's also like willing to change our behaviors and our way to, to to relate with nature, to relate with each other, and like not willing to be better than each other. So uh, I sometimes I say with my friends, I have this theory about the one million, uh, one million. Uh, uh, tattoo, how can I say that in English? So uh, nobody will be able to have more than one million dollars. You achieve one million dollars, that's it. That is all you need. If something extras, it goes for like a mundial bank, like a World Bank for uh, to support like resources for nature, and and then this way you can you can have like a high. Uh, like everybody will be able to have like high resources because one million dollars is a lot of money, and 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 there will not be like that much inequality, and because today we have like billionaires that, and and that, that I think that one of the main problem there is a this term like racist capitalism, that brings the burden about environmental injustice. Because if you see, uh, people are getting richer and like the the inequ- the inequality gap just keeps increasing. Not like in Brazil is one of the, the highest uh, countries if uh, the inequality is is super is is extreme in the United States is 
become like that as well. So the capitalist system does not sustain itself anymore. Like the taking resources for nature, uh, we're living in the Anthropocene epoch where the actions of the humans, they make more impact than uh, the, the changes, like the, the changes on the, on, the, on the earth phases, on the landscape change. Most of the landscape change now is made by humans. So we need to control that, to change our behavior, to see what we want to go through. It's not about having like financial resources and, and uh, luxury items. It's about like having uh, build resources to create more equity and, and, uh, and then to uh, be on the same level and, and, uh, it, and share and share knowledge. So I think the society needs to change the mindset. And that comes with the youth because uh, there is, if, if the pandemic, I th- I'm not that young, I'm 32. But I have like anxiety about the future. After the pandemic, it's hard. I cannot plan my life for more than three months, like six months. It's it's hard like to think. Oh, okay, I want to. What what are gonna be in five years? In ten years, we don't know what's, what's what what will happen. If another pandemic come, the loss of habitat. If another virus mutation happen, we that can happen. So it's hard to plan. So. We need to change our mindsets, be able to build up communities, to rely on each other, and, and and think collectively. So, and I think that is the responsive, like this change of mindset for the future. And I see that coming from youth. Uh, that is the revolution. Where is the, what this revolution will come from? Because that I think I imagine that can bring a lot of anxiety to see all this landscape change, all these extreme weather events and not be able to plan for the future. That is very frustrating, and that can impact even like the, the mental health and expect, expectations for the future and perspective on land use. Yeah. So what I'm also hearing is that there's the energy, consciousness, and, and spirit journey, right, that is also in parallel with this need to advocate for environmental justice justice which often looks like resources access to infrastructure or who gets to live where according to different pollution that takes place and so i just want to you know outline that those are two different things right because one is raising consciousness getting people to change behaviors perhaps or even for a lot of the communities in the and the developing world is understanding that just because it's the there's resources in the US that we don't all have to have that lifestyle right and and to be fine with with what is available there but that's so hard to say when you're over there you know because if you don't have clean water if you don't have uh food at the table then like it would be cynical for me to go up to them and be like hey you're fine here you don't need that you know <laughs> so it's it's the it's difficult and i'm trying to just make some space to talk about these things cuz i don't i don't feel like there's enough space to talk about these things not in the environmental movement not in any other industries and it's a different conversation than than what you're going to find somewhere else so as you mentioned youth is a big part of the podcast so what is your message to youth as they hear you today and they may be walking their dog or maybe listening to this conversation as they multitask and do something else. What are you here to share with them? 
it's a what is about uh, the excess of resources that's that is very true and that is urgent like except like people living in food deserts areas without like availability of fresh food people lives in corridors close to highways with uh, uh, where the air quality is not the best and not able to access clean water so all these are problems that impact your routine because you're not having access to the most basic needs. Uh, in Brazil, there is a big struggle with a basic sanitation that it's uh, like be able to have like sewage and clean water. And uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a big issue there as well. So uh, the youth, the youth has a power of having a fresh mind and, and the technologies are kind of built up to uh, be more appealing to youth and uh, interface that is uh, youth friendly. Uh, even like mapping software, GIS, you can access them through, through phone, through tablets. Uh, they're uh, largely used by youth. And uh, with the, and the, my, Message to the youth would be: Knowledge does not occupy space. Keep studying, keep learning new technologies. This can change technology, like especially if GIS, public participation GIS. You can use those tools to change the narrative, to map areas that need basic sanitation, to map areas that have been impacted by floods, to map areas that are being impacted by by wildfires. So, and then organize this data. Organize with in community uh, youth collectives, and bring this. Uh, the, the talk to to elder, teach how the elder to use this the new technology, work with intergeneration uh, focus groups, learning problems that are not just related to youth but can be related to people in other generations as well, and communicate. Youth has the power to to speak out, to communicate, to be rebel, be rebel. It's for youth, and if you're not angry, you should be angry, you should be rebel, you should be willing to make the change. That's the power of youth, to have the voice, to have the energy to change. So, and then use technology. It doesn't need to need to go to, to a school to, to attend a college. There is a lot of open resource, watch YouTube videos, connect with free webinars, free seminars, and but use your time to learn new tools, to be able to make the change, to connect with people who are thinking in revolutionary thought. So that'll be my message for you. Youth is the answer for the future. Yeah, and what I heard through this conversation too has been not only the willingness to change, right? But it's it's a characteristic, I think, that a lot of the youth who have relationships at the front line, they already do it naturally, right? Yes. And so... If you have that adaptability muscle or not the willingness to change, I would say, but more like you have the attribute of being adaptable or you have the attribute of being able to change under different circumstances, that already makes you resilient, right? Because that's at an ecosystem level, at a diff at different types of levels you are already able to adapt. And so if you are able to do that and you're looking for a way to which support the, those communities, you are well positioned as a, as a young person who understands some of these technologies, 
who able is able to speak the languages, right? It puts you in a great spot and I'm excited at, at the at the prospect of youth being able in touch to get in touch with you, Lorena, because I think in you they will see that, hey, I can have a career doing GIS systems. I can have a career engaging with data and still be true to my community and still be true to environmental justice issues and still be true to a lot of other injustices that are taking place. So thank you for so much for being in the show, Lorena. I am excited to continue to have these conversations with you. What are some ways in which folks can stay in touch with you and find out more about what you do? Yeah, no, that, that's great. Great conversation. Very uplifting. Thank you for the, the time. Uh, so you can find me on social media, Lori Birth. And uh, if you are uh, an English speaker, I post in English there. And se você está falando português, me segue no Jupira da Praia, onde eu falo sobre cultura negra. And é um jeito de se conectar comigo também. So, uh, just saying Portuguese, uh, for those who speak Portuguese, I have uh, another account, Jupira da Praia, which is uh, when I talk about black culture in general. Uh, I often do like a short videos talking about like African culture and then some, uh, and then African diaspora, either in the United States or Europe, and then in Brazil. So, and talk about like music, uh, just like black people. Black artists in uh, in general. So, uh, Lori Burf and Jupiter the Paraya. These are my two social media accounts. <laughs> awesome. And this episode is meant to be just a seed for the listeners who are tuning in right now that we're going to have Lorena back on the show. And this is just one episode as means of getting to know her a little bit. As Lorena and I prepared for this episode, we realized there's so many other things to discuss that is just a seed. Today is just a seed. And yes. so thank you so much, Lorena, for being on the show. And uh, I'm excited to have you back again and have you interview other people, have you create new narratives. You have now tuned or you've tuned into the Climate Frontline podcast. We are found in all major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcast and Spotify. You can find out more about the podcast at www.climatefrontline.com. If you are interested in telling a story or asking a question for Lorena and I, there's a voicemail tab there and you can record yourself and send us a question, a story, an appreciation, whatever that may be. If you enjoyed this podcast today, maybe you have a friend from Brazil or maybe you have someone who's in mind with you today as you listen to us please be sure to please be sure to share this episode with them otherwise i'm excited for the next episode that we're going to have here at the climate frontline podcast i will see you next time see you ciao peace bye <laughs>